This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Welcome to the podcast. Today's big number is 500,000 or half a million. Uh, referencing the uh, quote from the Joni Mitchell lyrics, of course, by the time we got to Woodstock, we were half a million strong. This month marks the 50th anniversary of Woodstock, and, you know, the connection to public opinion that we always cover on this podcast may be obvious at first glance. To be sure, we people draw a lot of parallels from the late 60s to today. Most of us weren't there uh, or, or couldn't have been there. But for anybody following the news and culture, certainly music, over previous or over the ensuing generations, it can sometimes feel like you were. At Woodstock, the images, the acts, the influence from the 1960s still seems to permeate today, 50 years on. How does an event, a concert in upstate New York, become seared into American consciousness? How does it become a symbol for these larger themes? We're going to explore that today, and I am delighted to be here in the studio with Bud Mishkin, CBS News correspondent and host of an upcoming special on Woodstock, uh, looking at it 50 years on. Bud, great to have you. Thank you for having me. And uh, on the uh, other end of the line here, Lenny Steinhorn, listeners to this podcast, of course, know him well. Lenny, historian and professor at American University and also, I should note for context here, author of a book on the 1960s, The Greater Generation. Lenny, how are you? Hey, great to be here. So, so, Bud, let, let me kick that off. What happened in August 1969 up there? How did that come together? Well, it's like any success, it's a team effort. And there's a little bit of great fortune involved. You know, about a month before, they were supposed to do this festival in Wallkill, New York, in upstate New York, not far from where they eventually ended up, Bethel. And then Wallkill just decides, they hear about how many kids may show up, and they decide we're not having it. And so a month before, they're without a sight until... They get a phone call from a farmer named Max Yasger saying, I got a farm here who was no raving liberal, but he thought that they had been wronged. And it was kind of a free speech, as was told to us later by the people who dealt with Max Yasger, kind of a free speech issue for him. And he, he showed them his farm and it was a perfect natural amphitheater. And the pros that the organizers had hired said, yes, this will absolutely work for us. So four weeks of work begin. They thought maybe they might have 50,000, maybe double that, 100,000 people. And then the story that one of the organizers, Joel Rosenman, tells is a couple of days before the start of the festival, maybe on Wednesday, uh, the guy who's in charge of the crew says, you can have a stage or you can have fences because it was a ticketed event, but you can't have both. Huh. And at that moment... They look out and they see already thousands of kids on the, on the lawn. And, and they decide, let's build the stage. Okay, so in the days before social media, mm -hmm. how did word spread? How did it go from 50,000 to 400, 500,000? Underground newspapers, or not so underground newspapers like the Village Voice. And also there were other festivals. 
Um, Mark Shearer, one of the attendees that we spoke to about his uh, Woodstock experience, talked about going to the festival a few weeks before in Atlantic City, in which had a big crowd, nothing, of course, like Woodstock. And he remembers at the end of that festival hearing the guy from the stage say, hey, we'll see you all at Woodstock. So there was a type of word of mouth that these festivals were happening. And also people, the notion of FM radio, like in New York, WNEW-FM, which eventually became a classic rock station, but was a progressive rock station at that point and played things, not the two-minute singles that you hear on AM top 40 stations. And they really had a growing power at that point. And so Woodstock was being discussed on WNEW-FM and other uh, radio stations of that ilk. So altogether, the word of mouth, the underground papers, uh, other festivals, people knew about Woodstock. One of the things you and I were talking about right before we started taping this was the idea that for everybody out there who went to or decided to go to Woodstock, it was a communal event in the sense that in their own hometowns, they may not have been as typical as maybe looking back on Woodstock, it it seems like they were. Absolutely. That notion of there are a lot of people who look like me. For example, if you grew up in upstate New York or some Jersey Shore town or really anywhere, especially a small town, and you had long hair in in high school in 1967 or 68, it may have been fine for the Beatles or the Stones because they were the Beatles or the Stones. But if you're the local guy who maybe plays music and has long hair, you were not so popular. And uh, you might get bumped in the hallways in school. But if then, as some of the people who I've interviewed who went showed up at Woodstock and all of a sudden they saw thousands of people with long hair and they talk about having the notion at that moment and then it really having some meaning through the years of seeing people who looked like me, who dressed like me, that I wasn't alone in this. And it made them feel like part of a much bigger group. Lenny, pick up on that if you if you would for a moment. You, as you write about this and the the greater generation, and you talk about the way that these events helped define a generation. If it wasn't everybody who was listening to this music or going to these these festivals, how did they gain that that big cultural influence? Well, we have to remember today when people can dress any way they want at work, and you walk down the street and you see people with all sorts of, you know, wear and dress and clothing and personal expressions and tattoos, it wasn't that way back in those days. You know, your hair, your dress, your music you were listening to, they weren't merely hair, dress, or music. They were expressions of an emerging 60s culture, freedom from constraints, freedom from conformity, prejudices of, from a previous era. So this was an expression of freedom, and Woodstock was really sort of a symbol of that. Somehow, Attitudes were beginning to change at that time, and that's the interesting thing about all of this, is that Woodstock represented a fundamental shift in attitudes among a generation. I go back to surveys by the great pollster Daniel Yankelovich, um, and as early as 1971, uh, they did, he did a survey of college students. Basically, they were saying they were deeply troubled by America's treatment of gay people, of black people, of Indians, of Mexican-Americans. In fact, 84% of college students back then cited the widespread discrimination against what were then called homosexuals and said, this is wrong, this has to change. So Woodstock becomes a symbol of something larger that's going on generationally in terms of attitude changes, normative changes, and ultimately this generation would change the rest of America as we move ahead in the subsequent decades. That's that's fascinating. And I, I recall I was at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame not too long ago, and they had this great exhibit on Hendrix, and they had his guitar that he played at Woodstock, on which he'd played 
the Star Spangled Banner. And they were running a tape of, I think it was him on the Dick Cavett show, but, but forgive me if I'm mistaken. And he was talking about the fact that the way he played the Star Spangled Banner at Woodstock it ended up being controversial. And to a lot of later generations, you just hear that song, you go, oh my God, you know, Hendrix, that's just amazing. And and the idea that taking, doing his own riffs on it, literally, would be controversial was interesting to me. Can, can you guys, you know, talk about the way in which the, the content of the music and what they were singing about also kind of reinforced this idea of cultural change and marked it as, as, a, as a watershed event? Well, it was generational. I mean, you had uh, Country Joe and the Fish uh, singing about Vietnam. And that became this big, big chant throughout Woodstock. And even though Woodstock wasn't necessarily a political event, I would say it sort of politicized culture. And this is where sort of protests against Vietnam merged with a sort of generational consciousness and new set of norms that were developing at the time. So the, the music itself did express a sense of freedom from constraint and freedom from conformity. You listen to Richie Havens starting off the show, you know, singing Freedom with that legendary song. So in many ways, it was this sort of merging of cultural and political expression and generational consciousness that was funneled through all of the music. And when it comes to Richie Havens, uh, it really is the epitome of necessity as the mother of invention because Richie Havens starts off because, again, several of the other bands are not there because of the traffic. Richie Havens is there. They send him out first. And as John Morris tells the story, the production coordinator and guy is essentially the stage manager, tells the story that he, Richie comes off. He comes off stage. And Morris says, we got nobody else. You got to go back out there. So he goes out like four or five times. And then finally he says he's done. He says, Richie, I need one more. And he starts improvising on freedom and, and takes it from there and does something brilliant because he's a brilliant musician and it becomes iconic. <laughs> and it's all because... Of the circumstances, there was nobody else around to play. So, Richie, we need you to play some more. So, I love that notion of Woodstock that because of some of the small things, such as, we don't have anybody else, Richie, you got to play some more songs. And he creates this song essentially on the spot that becomes one of the songs that he's connected to for, and blessedly so, for the rest of his career. But Lenny mentioned earlier that it wasn't meant to be political. When you're talking to the organizers, the folks who put all this together, was it deliberately not meant to be political, or was it just sort of assumed that music and politics were, were tied up in the day and together? Uh, I, I think it was meant mostly uh, for music and to have a big festival, and it was going to be in Woodstock because... Initially, hey, there are some great musicians who live in Woodstock, namely Bob Dylan and the band, and Janis Joplin apparently lived there at least for a time, so maybe we can get some of this local talent, and then it, it kind of mushroomed from there. But again, again, the music wasn't just music. The music was an expression of a generation, and the generation was sort of breaking the norms of the previous generation, and all of that became political. And when you look, for example, at the New York Times initial take on Woodstock, okay, they called it, and I quote their uh, editorial on August 18th, 1969, Nightmare in the Catskills. And listen to the lead of this editorial. The dreams of marijuana and rock music that drew 300,000 fans and hippies to the Catskills 
had little more sanity than the impulses that drive the lemmings to march to their deaths in the sea. The mainstream media, mainstream culture didn't get this new generational impulse, and that's what made it political, even if it wasn't necessarily intended as political because it was focused more on the music. I always love, uh, and there's the famous line from uh, the record uh, with Arlo Guthrie, uh, one of my favorites and uh, one of the musicians we interviewed, when he says, New York State Thruway's closed, man, and it became iconic, and it's funny because Arlo Guthrie is funny. And, of course, that's not specifically a political statement, but that notion of we created something that could actually close the New York State Thruway, there is, there is power in this generation. And one great story that I love is the people on the cover of the album that came out in 1970, uh, Nick and Bobby Urkeline, were dating. They were local, relatively local, Middletown, New York. And on Friday night, they're listening to the local, Friday afternoon, they're listening to the local radio station. And the guy says, it's crazy up there, don't go. And as they say as 20-year-olds, well, if you hear, don't go, we're going. And so they go. And they go and they spend Friday night there and they sleep out on, on, on the hill and Saturday and then Sunday morning they get up and unbeknownst to them their picture is taken and that becomes the cover of the Woodstock album and they're hugging. It's a very sweet picture amidst the masses on the ground just waking up. And so I said to them, so did you stay? Did you stay to, to hear you know, Hendrix on Monday morning? He said, no, we had to go home. We had, we had to work on Monday. I mean, how are we going to you know, pay our way through college? We had, to, we had jobs to go to, <laughs> which I thought was an interesting take because it kind of showed the notion that everybody was going to go from Woodstock to go live on a commune somewhere. <laughs> and I mean that quite seriously, was not the case. There were all types who went to Woodstock for all different reasons. The after effect may have been, look at this expression of this generation and both the music and the power of this generation to change minds. And some of those minds were right in Bethel, the locals who were against it initially, but once all these kids showed up, did acts of kindness, like give them peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and cups of water and so on. There are tons of stories like that. But going in, uh, they were coming for all different sorts of reasons and they weren't necessarily looking to change the world in a big way maybe just in small ways. And I agree with Bud on that, but I would also say that the whole of Woodstock became greater than the sum of the parts. So as I like to say, you can take Woodstock literally and focus on the event and the people who went there, or you can take it seriously as a marker of what was to come. Wow. Another issue with Woodstock I found was sometimes people would mix up their own memories with seeing the film. Ah. Oh. And sometimes they had people, you know, like, oh, I was there and I saw so-and-so. Mm -hmm. So, But you said you were there only Saturday. Mm -hmm. That person played on Friday. No, I saw some. And I'm not saying that makes them a bad person. I'm saying that's the notion yeah. of memory. Yeah, yeah. In fact, I, years ago I did a profile on the writer Paul Oster. He's uh, oh. great novelist. Yeah, yeah. And I think it was him who said to me, like, the notion of storytelling, when we tell a story from the past, when we tell a story, we're not telling the story of what happened. We're telling a story of the last time we told the story. Mm -hmm. And and I think what's also interesting, what you guys have both raised, is other festivals. And what I want to know is, did that did the festival circuit, did the number of live events become also this kind of community? Did become also a way of letting the legends of these artists and of the counterculture grow in an era before all of this was on live TV or on YouTube. 
Well, there was a gathering of the tribe at all of these uh, events, and it wasn't just concerts. You had the Summer of Love in 1967 in San Francisco. Um, you had all of the peace marches and the moratoriums in Washington, D.C. So, you know, what, what it was was a sort of sense of generational connectedness that people feel today maybe through social media, but people actually did in one-on-one when they sat on the buses going to these events or the whether they hitchhiked or whether their mother brought them to Woodstock. The bottom line is people wanted to be around other people that they saw shared a similar sensibility, appreciation of music, embrace of culture, and embrace of change. But I think empirically the point is that it's a part of a generation. It's not everybody who was born, you know, and and coming of age around 1969. It was a particular part of folks who had embraced this kind of culture and its music, etc. Well, no generation is like that. I mean, the question about generational history is what becomes a critical mass of a generation? What becomes representative of that generation? I mean, and you go back, look back at those Yankelovich surveys, and the critical mass had been achieved. For example, a 1974 survey he did, a vast majority of that generation said that young people should be taught to think for themselves rather than follow what their elders think. Large numbers rejected outward conformity for the sake of a career. Large numbers rejected keeping one's views to oneself. So, yeah, you're right. No generation is unanimous. No generation is going to incorporate every single attitude. But there was a certain cultural shift toward individuality, toward freedom of expression, uh, toward, you know, freer sexuality, freer personal choice that I think marked that particular baby boom generation and changed institutions from that point on. And looking at it on the micro level in terms of wanting to be part of something bigger or with people who kind of got it, uh, one of the attendees who I spoke to was in college in Ohio at the time, although he grew up in New Jersey, had driven to Cape Cod to talk to his best to buy tickets for the three days, 18 bucks total, that's a decent amount of money for a college student in those days, and pick up his best friend who was working on Cape Cod for the summer, and, and we're going to go, right? And the best friend says, sorry, I got a job here on the weekend, Cape Cod on the weekend, I can't leave my boss. He says, no, you, you have to come. You, it's going to be great. You have to come. I can't leave. He leaves without him, and he picks up someone along the way on Cape Cod who was just hitchhiking on the side of the road, long hair, and he says, you going to Woodstock? Come on in and go, drives them to Woodstock or drives them to Bethel and they parked the car miles from the site as many people did because the traffic was so terrible and it's the last he ever saw of him. Couldn't remember his name, but he remembers the story and he remembers picking up the guy. And to me, that's just one story, obviously, of thousands, but it's kind of uh, representative of, wow, I see someone, I bet you, you know, the anticipation of going to this thing, I want to share it with someone, get in the car, let's go. Guys, I could do this all day. This is fascinating. Lenny Seinhorn, Bud Mishkin, this has been wonderful. Uh, Thank you, guys. My pleasure. This is fun. Let's uh, do uh, three more of these. What do they call it? Uh, uh, Three days of peace and music. We can just (laughs) riff on that for three days, right? Three podcasts of of peace and music. uh, Except that I can't play guitar like Hendrix, I can tell you that. (laughs) I'm disappointed. Yeah, but not surprised. (laughs) (laughs) All right, guys. Be well. And Bud, just remind folks, your CBS News Radio special, Back to the Garden, how can they find that? Back to the Garden will be on CBS radio stations around the country and also on the uh, CBS News Radio uh, website. Look, looking forward to it, Bud. Thank you. And thank you, Lenny. This has been great. We have explored and learned how it is that a concert 
becomes a legend, how it is that the legend of something 50 years on still captures the imagination of a generation and the American public at large. It's been fascinating. So let me thank all of you out there for listening. Let me thank my producer, Alan Pang, who always does a great job and found some terrific audio clips along the way for this one and everybody at CBS News Radio. I am Anthony Salvanto. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe, please give us a rating, and please follow up. We will continue this conversation with a set of outtakes, a little more free-flowing because there's so much rich history here. So if you've downloaded this, the day it comes out, we'll be up with that tomorrow. Otherwise, if you've just downloaded it and it's already up there, check your downloads list and you should see the outtakes as well for follow-ups with Bud and Lenny. Thanks again, and I'll see you here next episode. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money, and maybe more importantly, on your life. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.